Chapter Sixteen of the Hand of Fu Manchu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Hand of Fu Manchu by Sax Romer. Chapter Sixteen. I track Zarmi. What does it mean? said Nayland Smith wearily, looking at me through the haze of tobacco smoke which lay between us. A well-known man like Sir Baldwin Fraser is decoyed away, undoubtedly by the woman's army, and up to the present moment not so much as a trace of him can be found. It is mortifying to think that with all the facilities of New Scotland Yard at our disposal, we cannot trace that damnable cab. We cannot find the headquarters of the group. We cannot move. To sit here inactive whilst Sir Baldwin Fraser, God knows for what purpose, is perhaps being smuggled out of the country is maddening. Maddening! Then, glancing quickly across to me, to think... I rose from my chair, head averted. A tragedy had befallen me which completely overshadowed all other affairs, great and small. Indeed, its poignancy was not yet come to its most acute stage. The news was too recent for that. It had numbed my mind, dulled the pulsing life within me. The SS Nicobar of the Oriental Navigation Line had arrived at Tilbury at the scheduled time. My heart leaping joyously in my bosom, I had hurried on board to meet Karamina. I have sustained some cruel blows in my life, but I can state with candour that this which now befell me was by far the greatest and the most crushing I had ever been called upon to bear, a calamity dwarfing all others which I could imagine. She had left the ship at Southampton, and had vanished completely. "'Poor old Petrie,' said Smith, and clapped his hands upon my shoulders in his old, impulsive, sympathetic way. "'Don't give up hope. We are not going to be beaten.' "'Smith,' I interrupted bitterly, "'what chance have we? What chance have we? We know no more than a child unborn where these people have their hiding place, and we haven't a shadow of a clue to guide us to it.' his hands resting upon my shoulders, and his grey eyes looking straightly into mine. "'I can only repeat, old man,' said my friend, "'don't abandon hope. I must leave you for an hour or so, and when I return, possibly I may have some news.' For long enough after Smith's departure I sat there, companioned only by wretched reflections. Then further inaction seemed impossible. To move, to be up and doing, to be seeking, questing, became an imperative necessity. Muffled in a heavy travelling coat, I went out into the wet and dismal night, having no other plan in mind than that of walking on through the rain-swept streets, on and always on, in an attempt, vain enough, to escape from the deadly thoughts that pursued me. Without having the slightest idea that I had done so, I must have walked along the Strand, crossed Trafalgar Square, proceeded up the Haymarket to Piccadilly Circus, and commenced to trudge along at the oriental rugs displayed in Messrs. Liberty's window, when an incident aroused me from the apathy of sorrow in which I was sunken. "'Tell the cab-feller to drive to the north side of Wandsworth Common,' said a woman's voice, a voice speaking in broken English, a voice which electrified me, had me alert and watchful in a moment. I turned as the speaker, entering a taxicab that was drawn up by the pavement, gave these directions to the door-porter, who with open umbrella was in attendance. Just one glimpse I had of her as she stepped into the cab, but it was sufficient. Indeed, the voice had been sufficient. All that sinuous shape and that lithe, swaying movement of the hips removed all doubt. It was Zarmi. 
As the cab moved off, I ran out into the middle of the road where there was a rank and sprang into the first taxi waiting there. "'Follow the cab ahead!' I cried to the man, my voice quivering with excitement. "'Look! You can see the number! There can be no mistake! But don't lose it for your life! It's worth a sovereign to you!' The man, warming to my mood, cranked his engine rapidly and sprang to the wheel. I was wild with excitement now, and fearful lest the cab ahead should have disappeared. But fortune seemingly was with me for once— and I was not twenty yards behind when Zarmi's cab turned the first corner ahead. Through the gloomy street, which appeared to be populated solely by streaming umbrellas, we went. I could scarcely keep my seat. Every nerve in my body seemed to be dancing, twitching. Eternally I was peering ahead, and when, leaving the well-lighted West End thoroughfares, we came to the comparatively gloomy streets of the suburbs, a hundred times I thought we had lost the track. But always in the pool of light cast by some friendly lamp, I could see the quarry again speeding on before us. At a lonely spot bordering the common, the vehicle which contained Zarmi stopped. I snatched up the speaking tube. "'Drive on!' I cried, "'and pull up somewhere beyond. Not too far!' The man obeyed, and presently I found myself standing in what was now become a steady downpour, looking back at the headlights of the other cab. I gave the driver his promised reward. "'Wait for ten minutes,' I directed. "'Then if I have not returned, you need wait no longer.' I strode along the muddy, unpaved path to the spot where the cab, now discharged, was being slowly backed away into the road. The figure of Zarmi, unmistakable by reason of the lithe carriage, was crossing in the direction of a path which seemingly led across the common. I followed at a discreet distance. Realizing the tremendous possibilities of this reconnoitre, I seemed to rise to the occasion. My brain became alert and clear. Every facility was at its brightest and I felt serenely confident in my ability to make the most of the situation. Zarmi went on and on along the lonely path. Not another pedestrian was in sight, and the rain walled in the pair of us. Where comfort-loving humanity sought shelter from the inclement weather, we too moved out there in the storm, linked by a common enmity. I have said that my every faculty was keen, and have spoken of my confidence in my own alertness. My condition, as a matter of fact, must have been otherwise— and this belief in my power is merely symptomatic of the fever which consumed me, for, as I was to learn, I had failed to take the first elementary precaution necessary in such a case. I, who tracked another, had not counted upon being tracked myself. A bag or sack, reeking of some sickly perfume, was dropped silently, accurately, over my head from behind. It was drawn closely about my throat. One muffled shriek, strangely compound of fear and execration, I uttered. I was stifling, joking. I staggered and fell. End of chapter 16